I am an avid reader when it comes to culture and society, especially when it comes to all the changes that have happened within the church over the last 20 or 30 years. One of the things that really just kind of spikes my curiosity is knowing how many people have walked away from the church over the last 20 or 30 years. They say even in the last 15 years, 10 years, in this area uh, with the survey that was given to us when we started entering this process of a new facility and they gave us 100 pages of, of research that had been done uh, in terms of demographics, etc., is that over 10% of people, even in this area, have walked away from the church in the last 10 years. And so, and I, I just, I go, why? Why why is that? It's such, the gospel, uh, the grace of God is so beautiful. Why is that? And I believe the simplest way to say it is because um, many people have been raised in church, not necessarily raised in Christ. Many people have been raised in church, not necessarily raised in Christ. That's why you have to be incredibly cautious when it comes to Knowing what you're following and what you're abiding in and who you are abiding in. And when we look at the book of Colossians, that I've already told you we're going to be jumping into right now. It's the reason that I preached last week on this overwhelming grace of God that he gives to us. Because Colossians does some of that as well. He helps us, Paul is writing this letter, helping them to understand the grace of God and who he is and all that he has done for us. And it helps to instruct us on what it looks like. To experience the grace of God, to be raised in Christ, and even what complete transformation looks like in a believer's life. I, I want you to think about a car. Um, I told you once before, I have, a, I have an 07 Toyota FJ Cruiser. Um, some people call it a wannabe Jeep. Um, and it's, it's a unique car. My buddy had it before. I got it from him. And he didn't tell me up front that it actually needed 92 octane gasoline. Um, and um, I said, he's like, well, you can put 87 or 89 in there. It's just you're going to tell a difference. And so I've tried it. My wife has tried it on accident. Um, and it does. It, it starts to make all these noises and sounds that it normally doesn't make. And the reason why is simple is because we all know that 87 or 89 octane is not as clean as 92 or 93 octane. It, it hasn't been cleaned, purified as much. And one of the things that the book of Colossians is helping us to understand is that we personally, we need to run on the grace of God. And anything that we put into our bodies, anything we put into our hearts other than grace, well, it means it's no longer grace. And we're not going to run as well. So if you throw bitterness into your life or if you throw legalism into your life, if you throw um, past regret into your life, anything other than grace, you're not going to function, you're not going to run as well as you could otherwise. It's what we learn from the book of Colossians, that's part of it, is that grace is what the Christian life runs on. And I'm not talking about performing um, particular tasks in order to earn favor with God. What I'm talking about is the beautiful joy of being able to live by the instructions of God because we know that allows us to be more intimate with who he is. It's about all sufficiency in Christ. In relationships, in our doctrine, in ethics and morality. It's this message that was being sent to Colossae. It's this message that was being sent to them because they were being led astray. 
Epaphras is the guy who actually started the church in Colossae. And he is, he's going and he's telling Paul, he's like, listen, they're doing well, but they're starting to be led astray. They're starting to put other things in what they're running on. The, the, the gas isn't as clean as it was originally. And they're being pulled other directions. And so they're trying to figure that out. And so Paul is writing to them to encourage them to make sure they understand what they're really doing. And for some of us, what we're, we need to examine for, as we step into a new year, but also as we step into just more of what God is wanting for us, we have to ask ourselves, what are we really running on? And what consumes your thoughts? What consumes your emotions? What consumes your thinking more than anything else? And is it the purity of God's grace or do other things play a role? They get in your way, that distract you, that hinder you from really being transformed in the way that God wants you to be transformed. And so before we go any further, I just want to pray that we will be able to recognize that the Christian life is to run on God's grace. That we need to be raised not necessarily in the church. Yes, God gives us the church. So those people who say, hey, I don't need the church. I can do it on my own. No, God very clearly gives us the church. Right? People who say they don't need church anymore are typically incredibly arrogant in who they think they can be by themselves. But we do need to recognize that we need to be raised in Christ before all else. God's grace. And some of us are stepping into another year and we still have other things that are contaminating who God is really desiring for us to be. And so let's go to, let's go to God in prayer before we continue. God, I come before you. And I ask that you would allow us to really understand that grace is what the Christian life is meant to run on. That we're so unworthy of what you've done for us. And it should overwhelm us. It should, it should cause us every single morning when we wake up just to shake our hands almost in disbelief that you, God, have given your son for us. And our brokenness and our weariness and and our anger and our bitterness that we have in our own life. You've come and you've done such a beautiful thing for us and we thank you. May we not be distracted or, or pulled away from who you are by any other thing. But may we simply sit in your presence. In Christ's name, amen. Yeah, so Paul is writing this letter during his first imprisonment in Rome. Um, and he's writing this letter during this imprisonment, and he's making sure that they really understand who God is and who he's desiring for them to be. Um, we know that during his first imprisonment, he spent at least two years there. It was really under house arrest, and he was there. Um, we, we can find that in uh, the last chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, you can find that, and you, you see some of those things unfolding. And he's writing this letter, and so I would say date this roughly around 60, 61, um, so about 30, a little less than 30 years after the, the death of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is writing this letter to them. Um, it's also something that we need to recognize that Colossae was this place that several hundred years before, even a hundred or so years before, it was a major trade route um, for that entire region. In fact, there's a, 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 a couple of maps that I'd like to be able to show you this morning because it's going to give us an idea of really 
where all of this was unfolding, where this was happening. Um, you see Jerusalem on the bottom right. Well, Colossae is way up there near Ephesus. Um, it's, I mean, this is after the missionary journeys. Again, Epaphras has started this church. And so this is in a different region. The reason this map is important is because this wasn't isolated. This Christian movement was not isolated to a 20-mile radius. It really was branching out and having impact other places. And the culture here didn't say, oh, yeah, we, know, we, we walked through all that journey with Herod and Pilate and the crucifixion of Jesus and whether or not he was taken from the tomb and whether or not... He really, you know, ascended into heaven. No, this, this area did not have that exposure. Trust me, they didn't have any news channel saying, hey, to the whole world, this is what just unfolded. So when you go back to this map and you look at it, you can really see how Colossae is so far away. And the gospel is now being interjected. It's, it's being cast into other parts of the world with different types of thinking and different types of philosophy and different, different religions that came into play. And so he's writing this letter. Um, another interesting thing about this letter with Colossae, by the way, it's in this, it's in this little triangle of these cities um, that really we find in Revelation, chapter 3, chapter 4. The seven churches, I preached on it this last year, it's in that same vicinity. And so some of these individuals, we learned, some of the 10, 12 miles away from some of the cities that we learned about in Revelation chapter 3, these letters that John are pinning to these places through the words of Christ, and we recognize the hostility. We recognize the lukewarmness of these places. We also find in this letter that the church was really under a lot of pressure to turn away from the message that it was all about Jesus. They were under a lot of pressure to turn away from making everything all about Jesus, right? Maybe you've been under that pressure before as well. I mean, I've, I've been in churches. I literally have had people come and say, listen, we love the Lord, but can you not talk about Jesus quite so much? I'm like, dude, you're in the wrong church, right? I'm like, come on, really? And sometimes, listen, I'll talk about it some more next week, but we know the name of Jesus is probably the most offensive name out there. We don't know what to do with it many, many times in our life. But here what we discover is this young church is being the target of attack. It's being the target of false teachers and all of these other people are coming in and they're trying to alter the message from being just about Jesus to being about other things as well. Things like ceremonialism where you have to abide by going to certain festivals or you have to abide by doing certain things in order to say that you're a Christian. And Paul's going, no, don't get caught up into this legalistic movement. Another thing was Gnosticism. We've spoken about that numerous times because all of a sudden that's something that we can do. We can make it all about your own knowledge. And we never allow that knowledge to, to, to penetrate our hearts and to, to, to filter into our hearts to change our lives. And we sure do know a whole lot about the Bible. But I look at some people and I go, yeah, but do you really know the love of God? Have you received his grace? And so he's speaking against Gnosticism. Of where, yeah, you think if you have all this knowledge, you're going to be good. But if you don't walk in the grace of God, you're missing the boat. 
So all of these things are unfolding. And it says the following in Colossians chapter 1. It says, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. There's a co-author here. And it says, we are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. He's encouraging them, and he's giving thanks for them. This is, uh, compared to the majority of letters of Paul, this is a longer thanksgiving than he would typically write. Because it continues on, he says, may God our Father give you grace and peace. So here's Paul, he, even though he had never been with these people before, uh, Paul is considered to be the representative of Christ. And so he's speaking to them, and they're giving attention to what he is saying. And he's encouraging the Christians to keep following Christ, but not to be fooled by any other teaching. Don't be tricked into following any of the other religious ideas or practices that were being taught throughout Asia Minor, which is where that, this was. And so he jumps in, and one of the things that you're going to see throughout the four chapters is he speaks about the complete preeminence or the complete sufficiency of Christ. You don't need anything other than Jesus. That's what he's hammering home over and over and over again. And that's something we have to ask ourselves. Do we really believe that we need nothing other than the grace of God? Do we really believe that? And that's, what that's where they started. But the culture is telling them, no, there's other things. And you know what? Certainly, let me tell you, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's not true. There's other ways. And they start, they start buying into that. And, they, and by doing such, they're stepping away. They're stepping away from the idea of the complete sufficiency, the, the complete preeminence of Jesus Christ. It continues in verse 3. He says, we always pray for you. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth. He's letting them know, we've heard about your faith. We've heard about your belief in Jesus Christ, and it's wonderful, and it's marvelous. In verse 6, he says, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. You already saw how far of a distance the gospel was spreading so quickly without media, without anything else taking place, no marketing campaign. And yet the gospel is just spilling out into the world. He says it's bearing fruit everywhere. Here's the reason it was bearing fruit everywhere is because it was changing lives, it says. And so I can't help but look at myself. I look at all of us and I go, how has it changed our lives? Because if we allow the gospel to come in and transform our lives, it will then spill out even more because we can't help but to speak to others about it. The gospel cannot be muzzled when it is seen through the grace, the lens of God and all that he has done. It says it's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the first day that you heard it from the first moment that you understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. He's letting them know the source of the change that they had in their life. And the source of change was God's grace. It's the most powerful force of change in anyone's life. It's grace. 
Grace is accepting that God has given himself up for you, which you do not deserve. And what changes people is when people recognize that God loves them regardless of anything that they've done in life. As it continues on here, it says that you learn in verse 7, you learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. Um, he's also mentioned in Philippians. That's the only other place I think that we find him in Scripture. But we see his name. We, we start to learn more about who he was because he went and started this amazing church. And he says he's, a, he's, he's Christ's faithful servant and he is helping us on your behalf. And he's told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So we have not, as a result of all that, it tells us, so we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. Your life will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Knowledge was this source of grace that we discover as well. Like they began to learn more about who Christ was. They absorbed it and it changed their lives. But here's what's interesting to me about it is verse 10, it says the following. Once again, it says, then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. That's a, that needs to be our desire. When you understand the grace of God, your desire will be to honor and to please the Lord no matter what you're doing. And the way that you conduct business and the way that you're a neighbor and the way that you have conversations at school, it doesn't matter, in friendships, with marriages, all of it. Your desire will be to honor and to please the Lord. And it's going to produce good fruit. You think about the fruits of the Spirit and what those things are, things like goodness and kindness and that our life is overflowing with those. That's what happens when you encounter the grace of God. Someone who is bitter and hostile and angry and upset with the world and insecure, they have simply not allowed the fullness of the grace of God to constantly fill their heart and they allow Satan to, in, to, to inject things like fear and worry and anxiety over and over again. And we've all done it. We've all done it. So he's writing these words. Now, what I think is interesting is this church was doing some wonderful things. Even though they were, they were getting distracted, they were doing some wonderful things in a part of the world that did not embrace who they were. You remember, this area was known for earthquakes. A lot of people would die from the earthquakes that were there. Um, roughly, you're going to say at least 96, 97% of the population probably lived in complete poverty. Like you had the wealthy, a few of them, and then you had everybody else who was way down here hoping to eat every single day. Just hoping to have food. So you had extreme poverty here as well. I mean, that was much of the world, but it was certainly here in this place also. And people needed jobs. There were false idols everywhere. I told you it was in the same area with the seven churches. One of the things that we learned about the seven churches is that they worshiped every type of God you could imagine. And so you would walk into some of these cities, and they had all of these different temples because they had a temple to anything that could be a God. And so you had all these false idols, you had a lot of poverty, you had so much despair, people without jobs, and yet here comes Paul. He gives thanks for them, and he says the following in verse 9 and 10. He says, so 
we're not going to stop praying for you. We haven't stopped praying for you since the first we heard about you. And then it's like he's letting them know what they're praying for. Now, right now, if they really know, and Epaphras is there communicating with Paul, letting them know the conditions of the church, of the people, of the culture, of the society. And you would think that the prayer would be, hey, we keep praying that everybody would have jobs. We keep praying that you'd have no more earthquakes. We keep praying that the society and the culture would embrace you more so that you can just live at ease and at comfort. That would be a good prayer. It would be great to be able to pray that prayer. But he says, he says this in verse 9 and following. He says, we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will. Okay, fine. I can take that. I need to have God's knowledge of what he desires. That's good. But to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then you're going to be able to live a life that's honoring and pleasing the Lord. Then your life will produce every kind of good fruit. Then you will be able to grow as you learn to know God better and better. And in verse 11 he continues. He says we also pray that you're going to be strengthened with all of his glorious power. So that you will have the endurance and the patience that you need. Right? There, notice the difference in the way that this prayer is being laid out versus the way that we often pray today. We often pray, God, give me the job that I want. God, give me the resources I need. God, make life easier for me. And yet here's Paul writing to them saying, no, our prayer to you is that you will be strengthened in the power of Christ. So that you'll have the endurance that you need to endure everything that's taking place. And sometimes we struggle with that God. We just want the hard to finish, to to be done with. And yet here the prayer is, no, we're praying that you have the endurance to walk through it. The patience that you need. Don't pray that I have patience. Like, that's what I'd be thinking. Pray that God fixes everything. We don't, we don't, I, I don't know if we would really like this prayer. Imagine if this church, our country continues to walk away from God and we're one of few. And tw- it's going to happen quick, guys. It could happen really fast. God can still redeem. He can redeem anyone, anytime, place, right? But it's happening quick. And so we're one of the few churches we feel that's actually still preaching the gospel. And so the government is saying, well, you're no longer a tax exempt. You're no longer this. You're no longer this. Making things as hard for us as possible. And we're still going to say, we don't care. We will serve and obey the Lord. But it's going to get harder and harder. And then all of a sudden you get a letter from someone that you respect immensely. And instead of saying, hey, I'm praying that things get better. He says, hey, I'm just praying that you keep enduring. What? You're going to pray that I keep enduring. And yet that's the prayer that we find here. Are we okay with that? Because what we find is not a prayer asking for God to change circumstances, but it's asking for God to change us in the midst of our circumstances. We don't find a prayer asking for God to change the circumstances. We find a prayer asking for God to change us in the midst of our circumstances so that what? We can be a greater influence, a greater witness of who he is. 
Sometimes when we pray things away, we're praying away opportunities to reflect the image of Jesus. That's why also I think that church, I told you before to start the entire thing, sometimes um, it's been ingrained in our own minds that we uh, were raised in church, not necessarily raised in Christ. And, but when you have been raised in Christ, you want to reflect Him. The prayer that is being discovered here is that people would discover God more. That we would give more of ourselves to God in all circumstances. Why? Because if you only ask God to change your circumstances, you'll always be walking uphill. Because there's always more circumstances to change. And so then you're always just saying, well, God, could you do this? Well, then God, could you do this? And that's why so quickly God becomes this this being that we just make requests to rather than worshiping and adoring and glorifying. That's where I just I want us to stop and go, are we, what does our prayer life look like? Is it always just asking God to change our circumstances? Or is it recognizing that God may be putting us in a circumstance so that we can reflect him? I've got a good friend of mine. Um, I've been thinking about a lot lately because his wife, who is also a good friend of mine, she passed away on Thursday morning. Uh, I was their pastor in Connecticut. And she fought for over 10 years with cancer. Um, and I remember when she first got it, I was her pastor at the time, and we went to Yale, New Haven, and down uh, to Sloan Kettering, which is a big hospital in New York City, and I was with them frequently and just walking through so many different treatments. And I, would, I was the guy that they would let see every single scan of her body, and we would see within literally weeks how you could see all the cancer cells, and they would start here, and within weeks it was all over her body. In the brain, in the kidneys, lungs, everywhere. And she just kept fighting. Made it over 10 years. And here's the thing that amazed me. In the three and a half or four years that I walked the journey with that family, not once did I ever pick up on any hostility toward God. But what the prayer was over and over and over again was, God, just use me in this situation. And we have some of those people here in this church who are doing the same thing. Because sometimes that's a hard thing to process. It's a hard thing to understand, to to offer that prayer. I get that that's a hard thing to sometimes pray is that, God, yes, I, I would like different circumstances But if this is where you want me, if this is where you can use me the most, so be it. May I grow in you regardless of the circumstance. And that's what's being written here. Now it continues on and it tells us in this this amazing passage. It says, may, in verse 11 and 12, We also pray that you be strengthened in all his glorious power so that you will have the endurance and the patience that you need. And then it says, may, and I remember all the hardship that they're walking through right now. The world is not being kind to them. And then he says the following, may you be filled with joy. (laughs) 
Would other people describe you as someone who just overflows with the joy of the Lord? Or are you always, oh, I'm just tired. Oh, yeah, but I'm just, I got to do this. Or, oh, yeah, but I mean, I'll get there. One of the greatest travesties in the believer's life is one who's waiting to have joy after they die. Rather than joy right now. Because circumstances don't define joy. Having Holy Spirit in your life defines joy. It alters the way that we view everything else. And so as we look at these verses in 11, may you be filled with joy. And it says in verse 12, remember all the hardship that's going on for them. The society, the world, everybody else is trying to change their message and saying quit, make it, quit making everything about Jesus. And he says always thanking the Father. Always, you know what always thanking the Father means? It means always thanking the Father. I'm brilliant. It doesn't mean sometimes thanking the Father when things are going your way, when circumstances are falling in place in the way that you want your life to be ordered and everything else. It means always, that means at all times, all circumstances, all situations, you need to thank. Thank means to give gratitude for the Father, God, for what he's done in his son, Jesus Christ. We don't like that message because our society tells us constantly the reason, that's, that's how they sell to you. You have stuff wrong, let us fix it. If you give us money, we'll give you this. Like that's easy, that's marketing. You don't have to go to college, young people. If you want to get a marketing degree, I just gave you the answer. Make people feel bad for what they don't have. Promise them something some kind of fulfillment, if they purchase what you have, if you can do that well, especially through a sappy story where you need to get a Kleenex, you're going to make a lot of money. That's how it's done. We don't like the message of always thanking the Father. And he tells you why to always thank the Father. Why? Because he has enabled. This is verse 12. Follow along with me. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. He has enabled you to share in what? The inheritance that belongs to his people. An inheritance of eternal life. A promise that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And if you process that, you can't help but to give thanks to God regardless of the situation. That's why I love, you know, this, this last early May, my father ended up passing away. And I have so many stories, and I've written down some of them. I need to write down some more of them, of just stories I could have from two and a half days sitting in the hospital with him before he passed. And I remember having the conversations with nurses because when, by the time I got there, I had been in Africa. By the time I ended up getting to the hospital, uh, my father was no longer speaking. But man, I, I remember the conversations with nurses because they had conversations with him before he stopped speaking. And one of the things that stood out to me so much is one of the nurses came up, I'm having this, she's like, what do you want to do? Do you guys think you're going to pull them off, the ventilator, everything else? And I said, yeah, it's going to be soon. I think we'll do it this weekend. We'll see how it all unfolds. And she tells me, 
about the conversation. She goes, you just need to know that our conversations always revolved around how great God was. He's there. He knew he was going to die. The day before he went to the hospital, he bought my mom a new car because hers was 15 years old, and he knew that he was about to die. That's what he did. She didn't know, but he knew. And his last words were, let me tell you about how great God is. Not anger, not bitterness. And that's the story, that's the letter that's being written to the people of Colossae is, listen, I know the world is crumbling around you in many ways, but you can always give thanks because our God is marvelous. God is marvelous. And so here's the response, 11 and 12. It's giving us the response. Always thank the Father who's enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in his light. Be thankful that he's enabled you to share in his inheritance. Be thankful for the freedom he's given you. Be thankful for, for, for the forgiveness of sins. Be thankful, it tells us later on, that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. Here's something that jumped out to me so quickly. And recognizing, so this is where the contextual stuff comes into play. When you recognize all the persecution and all the hardship that Colossae and other churches are enduring and going through, and then the message is still be thankful, this is what you recognize, is that when you no longer are thankful, grateful for something that you have been given, it is because you feel entitled. When you're no longer giving gratitude, when you're no longer giving thanks for what you have been given, it is because you feel entitled. It can be this, it's with spiritual stuff, but it's, all, it's with everything in our life. It's a person who, you know, and, and you've got to be careful how you even judge other people on it. The other day I'm walking into a restaurant with my family, and this guy is right in front of us, and my girls are coming up, and... I, I was sure he was going to, like, hold the door for him, right? And one of my girls might have dead on. Boom. Hit the door because the door wasn't held open. And I'm just thinking, How, why are they not even opening the door? Like, my judgment toward them went quickly. And the reason I share the story is I, I just go, wait a second here. Sometimes we even expect this certain response from other people of gratitude, of wanting to make sure that we do the right thing. But when we are no longer thankful, when you no longer hear true appreciations for who God is and what he has done in our life, it's because you feel entitled to it. You are not entitled to the forgiveness of the sin that you have in your life. You are not entitled to it. It is a grace of God that allows that to happen. Do you feel entitled to this is just what God owes me? God owes you nothing more than what he's already done through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you feel entitled? When you stop giving thanksgiving, when you stop giving praise, that's why the church today should be bubbling with praise and worship and gratitude and thanksgiving. It should be bubbling outside of these doors because we know we're not worthy. And instead, we get angry at God because he's not doing more for us. He owes us nothing more. 
when you stop giving thanksgiving and gratitude for what God has done in your life, you think it's just deserved to you. You are in a dangerous place. That's why I get pumped. Because I know I don't deserve it. I mean, can we at least agree that what we've been trying to do as a society, as a church in the society, it's not working. But if you obey these rules exactly the way we do it, we don't find them in the Bible, but just do it the way we do it. We're going to raise you in the church in a certain way. You're not going to know much about having a relationship with Jesus, God Almighty. But if you just do this and we're wondering why people are walking away time and time again. Guys, I just want you to have a relationship with Jesus. That will fix everything else. That's what we got to get. The whole, the whole passage here is Paul reminding them in many ways, and it's going to jump again in, in, as you jump into verse uh, 15 and following, and that's next week. But as you jump into this, it's reminding us that God has rescued us, and our response of being rescued is thanksgiving. We have been rescued. Praise God. And when you stop praising God, it's because you feel entitled. When you feel entitled, it's because you're actually worshiping something other than God. Are we thankful for Christ? There's certain movies that resonate. I want to conclude with this just very, very quickly. I'll, I'll have the praise team go ahead and come back out. I didn't wear a watch today, so... Be glad that God just said, shut up, Joel. I'm not encouraging the watching of this movie because it's rated R, but I love Braveheart. Anybody else? You watched an R movie. That was a trick. And there's a, there's a scene in there where William Wallace is speaking and it's supposed to be based on real life circumstances. It's been Hollywoodized. But he's, he's sitting there and he yells out. He's like, you've been so busy scrobbling for the scraps from the king's table that you've missed your God-given right to something more. He speaks a lot cooler than that, though, as he says. And he's got like paint on his face. And I think spiritually many of us have lived our life scrobbling for the, and just scraping for the scraps of whatever can meet our fulfillment for that moment, that we've missed our God-given right to something so much more. His name is Jesus. Like I, I'm waiting for a mass of men who are burly and strong because you're all Dutch and bigger than I am to come forward and say I don't care what anybody else thinks my fulfillment is in Jesus Christ 
because I've been looking everywhere else and I can't find it. That's what I'm looking for. That's what God's looking for. All I know is that I'm a beggar that's not worthy to sit at his table. And God lets me sit at his table. And he says, come on and eat with me. It's good. I mean, in a way, to me, that's what Paul is communicating. Is guys, you've been invited to the table with God. Don't forget, don't get distracted because you've been sitting at the table with God. And if you allow this Gnosticism and ceremonialism and all these different things to start pulling you away before long, you won't even be sitting at the table anymore. Sit at the table of God. It's amazing. Guys, grace is not a good idea or a principle. Grace is a person. His name is Jesus. Wow. Let this alter your life. I mean, have you been raised in the church or have you been raised in Christ? Let this change your life. Let today, I pray, I pray at least 200 of you in here right now will leave this place and this afternoon you go have a conversation with someone else that tells them, you know what, my life has just changed because I met the person named Jesus and he is nothing but grace. I am no longer a victim. And you recognize that you've been fighting for scraps when he's offering you a seat at his table. God, uh, I so badly want others to see the face of God that I see. The face that overwhelms me. The face that helps me to process and understand that I am absolutely nothing without you and it's beautiful to recognize God I want my children to see my brokenness because in that brokenness I have found redemption in life through Jesus and I want my children I want us as a church as your body of believers as your fellowship I want us to be raised in Christ I want us to sit at your table and as a result of being able to sit at your table to be so overwhelmed that our lives, our mouths, our words, our actions would just pour out gratitude and thanksgiving. 
that our lives, our emotions, and our attitudes would be shaped by the eternal and not the temporary. That this, your church, God, this, your church, God, would be used as a megaphone blaring into the community that our God saves. Our God is grace. Our God is love. Our God is compassion. Our God is forgiveness. God, let us be your megaphone. May nothing silence us. And some of us in this place today, God, I know we need to make a greater commitment to receive your grace. Overwhelm us, God, because we believe in you. Help our unbelief. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. And as we do so, I'd like to invite you to use this time to declare God's goodness. That's why we always talk about our singing and our response to God, because I think when you really recognize who God is, you just want to get it out. But some of you may need to use it for prayer. We Come use the altar if you need to. You can bow where you are. You can raise your hands. Whatever you need to do that God is instructing. May we sing to him.